Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. The Kavli Prize is a partnership among the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the U.S.-based Kavli Foundation in Los Angeles, California. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I am obsessed with the exploration of the outer solar system, and I, and I think it, I think that word explains why it's 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 basic exploration. It's you know it's sailing across the ocean looking for for new worlds, but instead it's looking progressively further out in our solar system and discovering something that no one has ever seen before, and trying to understand what that then means is is uh, is both just an obsession and amazingly fun. That's astronomer Mike Brown. He's famous, or maybe infamous, for demoting Pluto from a planet to a planetary dwarf. He's now hot on the trail of a new ninth planet, one that's very different from Pluto, a planet six or seven times bigger than Earth and way, way far out beyond Neptune. His explorations of the outer solar system won him the Kavli Prize in astrophysics in 2012. We're now two weeks away from this year's Kavli Prize announcements, and in this special episode of Clear and Vivid, we're also celebrating another 2012 Kavli laureate. That's the amazing Millie Dresselhaus, a woman called by her colleagues the Queen of Carbon. She pioneered a whole field of physics and technology, despite working at a time when women physicists were few and far between. Millie died a few years ago, but her career in science, as well as her work promoting the careers of young women scientists, has been wonderfully brought to life in a new biography. I'll be talking with the author, Maya Weinstock, and playing some audio of Millie herself in the second half of this episode. But first, here's Pluto killer, Mike Brown. Mike, this is a real treat to see you again. I haven't seen you since... Ten years ago, when I helped the King of Norway present you with the Kavli Prize, that was that was quite a moment. That was it, pretty fun. It was for both of us. <laughs> and since then, you've kind of committed the astronomical crime of the century. You killed Pluto. I, I you know, I I like to think that um, I didn't I didn't kill Pluto as much as I helped to explain why Pluto really never was a planet to begin with. So I really feel like I've helped the world rather than harmed the world. 
Well, you didn't mind saying you killed Pluto in the title of your book. <laughs> well, that part. <laughs> how, how I Killed Pluto and Why It Had It Coming. It's a really sassy title, but a really wonderful book. So clear and funny in places and a real picture of the life of an astronomer. Thank you for the work you put into that. Oh, it was, it was my pleasure, truly. When you said that Pluto didn't match up to what should be the qualities of a planet, of a true planet, there were a lot of unhappy people in the world. It was really interesting. Children were upset in schools. Is it true you got thousands of letters? You know, I, I never counted the final number, but, um, but it wouldn't surprise me if, if that, was, that was the number. They, um, people, I, and it, it was not a surprise to me that this was going to happen. People, people are very attached to their neighborhood, and Pluto has been, as far as everybody could remember, part of the neighborhood. You know, planets, it's planets and dinosaurs is what I think of. Like the things that kids really care about, or at least that was me when I was a kid, planets and dinosaurs. And, and when you change any of those, it's, it's not so much you're offending the kids as you're offending your own memory of when you were a kid. And, and that's, that's hard on people. The, the, the kids are okay. It's the memory of the adults that really was the hard part. So why do it? What difference does it really make? to astronomy that you don't classify it as a planet? I think that that's, that that's a good question for us civilians to, to know the answer to. It is. And if you talk to some astronomers who are, who are tired of talking about this, they say, you know, none, none of this matters. This is semantics. Call it a planet. Call it a peanut. Um, call it a tree. They're just words. Words don't tell you what the thing is. But it's not. It's not the semantics that matter. The word doesn't matter. It's the classification that matters. And if you if you take Pluto, tiny, tiny, tiny little Pluto, and classify it as a planet, and then you have all these other things that are actually a lot like Pluto and a lot closer to being like Pluto than Pluto is to being a planet, the, the, the solar system doesn't make sense. And it's and it's hard to describe. One of one of the questions that we ask as, as astronomers who study the solar system is, is how do the planets get to be with the way they are? And if that question includes trying to figure out how Pluto got to be how it is, it's, a, it's an entirely different story from the rest of the planet. So, so classification is how we ask our questions. And if you get classification wrong, you ask the wrong questions. And, and maybe even wrong is not the right word. You can, you can classify things in any way you want. If you were, if you were looking at birds you could classify all the red birds and all the blue birds and all the yellow birds and start to ask why. But it's not nearly as interesting as if you classify all the raptors and all the seabirds and, and all, the, all the warblers. Like, there are reasons for those different categorizations. The colors don't matter as much. And that's, that's kind of what we're trying to get at when we say Pluto is not a planet. It does not deserve to be in the same category as the planets. Something I didn't know until I saw it in your book was that when you demoted Pluto, you demoted your own planet as well. You were pretty sure you had found a planet at one point. Was it? It's called Xena. Is that how you say it? It, it was. In fact, at the time, it had a nickname of Xena after, of course, the uh, warrior princess on TV. Um, and when we first found it. It was the, the first object in the solar system that had ever been found that was more massive than 
one of the current planets, more massive than Pluto. So it's about 25% more massive than Pluto. Um, clearly, if Pluto is a planet, Xena, now known as Eris, um, after the uh, the Greek goddess of discord and strife, um, Eris would certainly be a planet also. Uh, and so it, so for the first year after our discovery, this is when all of the, the, the big debates and controversy were taking place. And people would say to me, oh, what's it like? You discovered the 10th planet. What is, what, how does it feel? And I, and I, the answer was always, it, it feels sort of fraudulent. It, it was clear to mm. me that it was not of the magnitude of, say, Herschel discovering Uranus or Le Verrier uh, predicting and then finding Neptune. These things are substantial parts of our solar system. If you took any one of them out, our solar system would be a very different place. If you remove Pluto, if you removed Eris, moved him around a little bit, doesn't really change the solar system very much. They are as as fascinating as Eris was, and as as a, as much effort and time I I put into trying to find it, it was very clear that it was not really a planet. And so, I think it, it was always unclear to me whether astronomers would ever go along with the idea of of calling Pluto not a planet. But I like to think that that the fact that I was giving up my own planetary discoveries. Um, so Eris was supposed to be a planet. A couple of the other ones, I, I was I was allegedly the the greatest planet discoverer of all time. Which again, <laughs> well, I, it's, it's, it's right kind of it's kind of wonderful that once you had <laughs> discovered Eris and Sedna, that you didn't say, "Well, okay, let's say that Pluto is a planet." I got two more for you. Yeah, it just it didn't it it was it was bad science. It was bad categorization, and I'm and I'm as as much fun as it would have been to have had those as planets. I'm so much happier that now the solar system, when we describe it, even when we describe it to to school kids at the very first time when we have them learn the planets, we're describing it as it really is, as opposed to sort of the the lunchbox version that uh, that that my daughter had on her her lunchbox when she was growing up. What are the contributing characteristics, the qualities that make it a planet that Pluto doesn't doesn't stand up to? It's conceptually simple, um, but it's actually relatively difficult to write a precise lawyerly definition. Um, and, and anytime you do, then the lawyers will get involved and say, but what about this one? But but really, the, the concept is very simple. The, the planets in our solar system are the big gravitationally dominant bodies. And it, uh, of the planets that we currently know, they're all on these beautiful, stately, nearly circular orbits in one disk around the sun. And everything else is dominated by these bodies and everything else can can flit in and around and among the planets and get scattered out by the planets. Everything else just is only where it is because a planet put it there. The planets are are the big bullies and everybody else just has to do what they say. Because of their gravitational tug on these other objects, exactly. which are not so, massive enough to stand up to their gravity. That's right. So these these are uh, the the mass of the planets is so substantially more than all of these tiny things that are flitting around. That the tiny things are just like little gnats that the the planets throw away and and put anywhere they want to put. Um, so for example, Pluto goes around the sun two times. 
for every three times that Neptune goes around the sun. They're locked into this orbit. Um, it's a very peculiar thing, um, but it's not peculiar. Neptune forces it to be that way. The only reason Neptune is still alive, I'm sorry, the only reason Pluto is still alive <laughs> is because Neptune forced it into that orbit where it was it was stable like that. Neptune doesn't care if Pluto's there or not, but Pluto would not exist if Neptune wasn't there. Seems to have this very eccentric orbit, extends out in an extremely long oval shape rather than being circular. Pluto is quite eccentric. It even it dips inside the orbit of Neptune for a little bit before before going back out. But it is um, not even close to being the most eccentric of the things that are out there. We have now found these ones like like Sedna uh, that are so eccentric that they they come in kind of close to the rest of the objects, but then go so far out that they take 10,000 years to go around the sun. So there's a, there's an entire mm. huge population of objects of all sorts of orbits out there, all, again, totally dominated by the planets of the solar system. This is work that requires a tremendous amount of calculating, isn't it? You do more calculations than you do viewing? Uh, by far. Um, the The amount of time at a telescope is, is you know, counted probably in days or weeks a year. And all that rest of the time is looking at the data, calculating things, uh, trying to understand what the data are telling you, running computer simulations to see what might else, what else might be out there. Uh, it's, it's, it's no longer that lone astronomer sitting there at a telescope, staring through the eyepiece, mm -hmm. um, waiting to see what is revealed in the heavens. It's, uh, it's me sitting here in this office, typing in a computer most of the time. But you seem to enjoy, almost to the point of obsession, <laughs> plotting data, keeping track of numbers. It's because it's, because it's real to me. I am obsessed with the exploration of the outer solar system, and I, and I think it, I think that word explains why it's 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 basic exploration. It's you know it's sailing across the ocean looking for for new worlds, but instead it's looking progressively further out in our solar system and discovering something that no one has ever seen before, and trying to understand what that then means is is uh, is both just an obsession and amazingly fun. You get to, to read the the sky and see what it's telling you is also out there and then go try to find it. And it's, I, I'm always kind of amazed that this is what I'm allowed to do um, for my life's work. It's, uh, it I would never have believed it if you had told me when I was a kid, you know, with my posters of the solar system, even Pluto in my posters, which I loved. Uh, that like you are going to go explore these regions of, of 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 the universe and even further, I would have just my my head would have exploded. There ought to be big news pretty soon because you seem to have identified your own planet nine. I don't know if there'll be big news soon because that would mean we have to find it. But but we have seen, uh, I would say, very clear evidence of the gravitational effects of a really large planet out beyond Neptune. And out beyond Neptune means something like 15 times further away. Really big means six or seven times the mass of the Earth. So so huge, uh, the, the fifth largest planet in our solar system. 
and we have figured out that it's there, and, I, and I'm pretty convinced it's true. And we're now doing the the very slow process of scanning the sky, looking for it. It's a it is much much harder than all of this that I did 20 years ago to find these other things like like Eris and Sedna because it's so much further away and so much fainter. I don't know where exactly in the sky it is. I know areas in the sky in which to look. What would you say is the main clue that suggests to you that there is a planet nine? There are multiple clues, but the single most important one and the first one that we realized is that the very most distant objects in this region out beyond Neptune, the, the, the Kuiper Belt, these very most distant objects are on these very elong elongated orbits that take a really long time to go around the sun. Sedna is one of these objects. They take a really long time, 10,000 years, 5,000 years to go around the sun. Strangely and, and totally unexpectedly, all of these very distant objects, if you, if you were to look at their, how they orbit the sun, if you were to look down at the, the planets, you know, as you typically see them all circles, you would see these very elongated things. They all go in the same direction. If you just think of them as hands of a clock, all of the hands are pointing in basically the same direction. That should not happen. And when we first realized that was happening, it just sort of, we, we stared at it, trying to understand how you could possibly get all these things pointed in one direction. And it, and it turns out the only solution, after, after trying everything else, the only solution is a, a giant planet on this elongated orbit, unlike all the other planets in our solar system. Uh, it's a very strange beast. And we think it probably formed near Uranus or Neptune, got a little bit close to maybe Saturn and got flung out there on a very eccentric orbit and has been basically lurking out there ever since, waiting for someone to notice. I could point my finger all the way around the sky of the path that it takes in its seven or 8,000 year orbit. The one thing we don't know though is where in its orbit it is. And so we have to systematically go 360 degrees around the sky along this very small swath to try to find mm. it. And we're doing that, but I don't know when will that one day we'll be crossing that one spot and suddenly say, oh, there it is. Um, so maybe today, I'll, I'll go look later today and see if we found it. Is there a limit to how many planets are out there? There, there is a limit, and and we are not yet close. So Planet Nine, we think, is something like 15 times the distance of Neptune. You could easily put a Planet 10 and an 11 and a 12 at uh, 30 times, 50 times, 100 times. Those those are all perfectly good. They can they can they can fit, and once you realize that there's a good possibility that this Planet Nine is there. There's no particular reason to think that there might not be more. There's no evidence that there is, but there's no good reason that there shouldn't be. Um, so it would not surprise me if not not um, by any of the technology we have today, but by stuff, you know, developed by by people who are just uh, the kids staring up at their posters um, today, they're going to go off and build even bigger telescopes and more powerful computers and, and might be able to find these things even further out there. Well, on behalf of those kids staring up on their posters and on behalf of the rest of us, 
I hope you'll keep watching the skies and come up with Planet Nine before too long. Thank you. I don't think I'm going to ever stop doing that. Once Nine is under, we'll, we'll just keep going. <laughs> That's great. Thanks for this really interesting conversation, Mike. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, it was quite fun. Thanks for it, too. When we come back from our break, we go from the very big, the solar system, to the very tiny, the world of atoms, specifically atoms of carbon. That was the then unexplored region that the then rare woman physicist Millie Dresselhaus began investigating in the 1950s and 1960s. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience that transform our understanding of the very big, the very small, and the very complex. From scientific breakthroughs like the discovery of CRISPR-Cas9 and the detection of gravitational waves, to inventing new fields of research, Kavli Prize laureates push the limits of what we know and advance science in ways that could not have been imagined. The Kavli Prize is a partnership among the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the U.S.-based Kavli Foundation in Los Angeles, California. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now on to my conversation with Millie Dresselhouse's biographer, Maya Weinstock. This is going to be great because I'm such a fan of Millie Dresselhouse, and you've written such a complete and wonderful book about her. It's just great to know that. Thank you so much. I mean, it's just been wonderful chatting with Graham about it and knowing that you were interested. Um, I know Arlene had been had a, had a connection and was fascinated just with that book. Yeah, the the book you're talking about is the one my wife Arlene wrote about interesting people who grew up in the Bronx. Exactly, yeah. And when she found out, A, that Millie had grown up in the Bronx, she was interested. But we both met Millie the night I helped give her her Kavli Prize in Oslo. Right. And I think Millie told us that night that even though she was the first, I think the first person or the rare, the rare person who was awarded the prize alone as mm-hmm. one person, not sharing it with two other people. Right. And got the whole prize to herself of a million dollars. Yeah. Her plan was, I think she told us that night, her plan was to use it to help students advance in their careers. That's it. That is what happened. Yeah. And uh, she was the first person to win it all by herself. Your book, Carbon Queen takes note of the fact that she became the expert on carbon and through that helped change the world. Why was she so interested in carbon? 
Um, well, that's a great question. Uh, Millie started her research career looking at uh, other materials, actually. But when she joined MIT Lincoln Laboratory, um, her boss basically said, you know, I think we know all the secrets to superconductivity, which is what she had done her PhD thesis on. Uh, I want you to work on something else. And he, he kind of left it open. And her husband and longtime uh, research partner, Gene Dresselhaus, uh, was, had, a, had an inkling that carbon might be hiding some really interesting physics. Um, and at the time, many of her colleagues were looking specifically at semiconductors. And of course, you know, semiconductors were and remain very important for computing technologies. Um, but at the time, Millie had looked a little bit into semiconductors and was not super duper excited about them. She thought they were a little bit interesting, but not sort of on the fascinating level. And so Jean's suggestion of looking at carbon really kind of piqued her interest. Um, for one thing, it was kind of this mystery how like some of the properties were very mysterious and frankly hard to understand. And most people had no idea how it really worked. Um, and then the other reason why she was interested in carbon at the time was she was raising four very young children. Um, and this offered her a way to focus on something that was not quite as competitive as the semiconductor research that was happening. Um, so I don't think she knew exactly what she was getting into at first, but she clearly landed on a very important question that ultimately, you know, was an extremely exciting area of research for her and basically served the rest of her career. I think the, uh, the lack of competition in the field when she began working on carbon is is really illustrated in a, in a clip we found from a BBC interview shortly after she won the Kavli Prize. Let's listen to that for a second. At the time I, I entered the carbon field, there was less than maybe five papers per year published, and most of them were mine. And nobody was interested in the field. People thought it was too complicated, no applications. It was like that for really quite a long time. And she wrote 1,700 papers. Yes, quite a lot. Eight, eight books, was it? Yep, eight books. And her work on carbon enabled her to predict things that turned out to be extremely useful in turning our world around. Carbon nanotubes. So I don't make a mistake. You explain what a carbon nanotube is. <laughs> sure. Um, so Millie studied a number of different forms of carbon, and carbon nanotubes are essentially um, a roll of carbon atoms that are formed sort of like chicken wire, but sort of uh, rolled up into these tiny, minuscule tubes. And, you know, carbon nanotubes are rolls of uh, another form of uh, carbon known as graphene. And between graphene, carbon nanotubes, um, fullerenes, which are basically balls of carbon, sometimes known as buckyballs, um, and then also... So let me intrude right there so people have a, something to hang on to. Yeah. Buckyballs and fullerenes are named after Buckminster Fuller. Right. That's right. That's right. So they sure fullerenes, are. fullerenes are the broader class, and buckyballs are some form of fullerene. What what makes a fullerene? It's basically any single layer of um, carbon that's either in a ball form or this you know cylinder 
Um, and the properties of these materials are extremely interesting and um, they've been very useful in uh, just so many applications. We, you probably have some, you know, if not in your computer, then in your phone, perhaps in your phone battery. Um, you know, Millie also worked in carbon fibers, which are related, but tend to be a little bit bigger depending on, you know, uh, there are nanocarbon fibers, but then there are also larger ones. And those materials are also everywhere around us in terms of, you know, many of the um, structures within airplanes, within cars, uh, you might have a piece of sporting equipment that might have carbon fiber. So, you know, all of these types of carbon were not really known to science when Millie started her career. And now we have them in so many different applications. I mean, I, I basically just you know, touch the surface, but I mean, there are medical applications for both graphene and, and carbon nanotubes, sensors, things that can sense diseases, things that can sense DNA, uh, energy applications to uh, filtering water, like graphene is, is really being looked at as a way to efficiently filter water, take out uh, salt from water. Um, and so there's just kind of, it's kind of all over, uh, but most people don't really recognize that these materials are out there. And so I think that's one of the reasons why someone like Millie, you know, her story isn't, is not maybe as well known as it should be, but that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing that. We, we're, we're swimming in a sea of Millie Dressel House and we don't even know it. That's right. <laughs> and these, these shapes... Mm -hmm. that you were describing, the, the ball shapes, the cylinder shapes. Her work in that, her understanding of that, opened up the whole world of nanotechnology, mm -hmm. which, which is making changes every day in our lives. And I, I don't think we've, we've even scratched the surface in knowing what, what's to come, how our lives will change in the future because of that whole field. That's right. I think... Um Probably one of the most exciting areas that's still really being worked out right now is quantum computing. And um, you have, you know, many of uh, Millie's former colleagues and people that she that were students of hers are working uh, to use, uh, trying to figure out ways to use things like graphene to um, help develop quantum computers, which are basically computers that would enable. Um, computations that are extremely fast. And so that's a hot field right now. And we really don't know exactly where it's going to go, but her foundational research really helped to develop the beginnings of it. How hard was it for her as a woman to get into the position where she could do this amazing work? It was difficult for her in some ways, for sure. She definitely, you know, faced some significant challenges being a woman. Um, you know, she grew up in the 1940s and 50s and started her career really in the late 50s and early 60s. And, you know, at that time, women were really not considered uh, uh, eligible to become scientists. They, yeah, you, you know, you remind me, there's a, a clip from that BBC interview where she talks about what women were expected to do. What, what were the jobs open to them? Let's listen to that for a second. At that time, in the 1940s, three professions for women, being a school teacher, being a secretary, or being a nurse. <laughs> that was about it. And 
you didn't see women in the professions. I didn't know any. There was nobody in my family that had gone to college. I just didn't know such people, except for the teachers in school that I, I encountered. So I had very limited knowledge of career opportunities. And even when I went to high school, the vision of the guidance counselor was if you had no means, you wouldn't be able to go very far. And this was the very best high school in New York City. Amazing that she had the inner strength with little encouragement from the outside to get into the position to achieve what she did. Where did that come from, do you suppose? Yeah, absolutely. She definitely had this inner drive. Um, part of it was just an innate curiosity with the world, I think. Um, and she also was just really smart from the be from the very beginning. You know, she also benefited greatly from a music school that she attended. Her brother was a, a child prodigy on the violin, and Millie was considered to also be potentially a child prodigy as well, um, more for singing actually and and musical memory. Um, she didn't end up becoming a full full on prodigy, but she learned so much in music school, and that helped launch her. She basically met people who explained that there were opportunities that she could uh, apply for. So, for instance, she tried to get into a magnet high school in uh, New York City, Hunter College High School, which was the only like really good magnet school that accepted girls at the time. And she didn't really know anything on the exam. It was like another language to her, but she, you know, checked books out of the library and went to work. She aced her exam. She got into Hunter High, and that really changed her trajectory. Um, and, you know, later on in, in college, she went to Hunter College, and then she took a physics class with uh, Rosalind Yalo, who would later become a Nobel laureate herself. And Rosalind was herself trying to find a place in science, and she was, you know, had the had the problem of being a woman at a time when women were not accepted. But also, she was Jewish, um, and you know, it, she just could not get a place of work. Um, and so uh, Rosalind really backed her and encouraged her to the point where Millie changed her major and really changed her life. How did she get to Chicago, mm -hmm. and and when did you, when did that happen? So Millie ended up going to the University of Chicago for her PhD after a one-year program at Harvard, uh, well, technically at Radcliffe, um, but she studied at Harvard because she was you know, interested in physics at that point, and Radcliffe didn't really offer physics classes. So um, she ultimately ended up going to uh, University of Chicago to uh, work on her PhD, she ended up befriending uh, Enrico Fermi when she was there. You know, she kind of had these steps along the way, and Rosalind Yellow had, had encouraged her to go for fellowships and various opportunities after college. That encouragement must have been really important, especially, well, both Yellow and Enrico Fermi, mm -hmm. because he was the guy who was at the top of the field and could welcome her in. She had interesting things to say about Fermi in that interview. Let, let's listen to that. Well, he influenced me greatly. Uh, he came from Italy, where women had at that time already established quite a presence. And Enrico Fermi's wife was a physicist as well. And to him, having women around in the laboratory was not strange. He just liked students according to what they could do. He was very modern in that sense. 
I took a, a course from him. The classes in those days were very, very small. In my class at University of Chicago, which was the preeminent school in the U.S. in physics, we had 11 students in my year that passed the exams to continue. So it was just a handful of people, and those are the people, basically, that he was dealing with. They actually became friends and walked to the lab every day together. Is that so? Yeah. I'm not sure if it was every single day, but they would regularly meet each other on the way to class or to the lab. She mentioned it many times because, you know, she talked about what they just discussed in the sense that they were both fascinated with physics and science, but also she just mentioned feeling the sense of... um of inclusion. You know, he, he went out of his way to talk to someone who was very junior and, you know, obviously also a woman. And that was very unusual. Um, and that, you know, and that, that inclusion really made her feel like this is the kind of environment that someday I would like to have for, you know, my students. And she regularly brought up his name when she was talking about, well, how do I want to set up my lab and how do I want to set up my group and, you know, just encouraging the next generation. So it was a it was a really valuable relationship for her, even though it was only about a year because he unfortunately died um, just a year after they met. And when she got to MIT, she really did work consciously and hard, I think, at helping uh, other women progress. Yeah, absolutely. She helped form something called the Women's Forum at MIT, which was around for a number of decades, um, providing support and just, you know, ideas for, um, you know, navigating the, uh, the world in a time when, you know, women were still very, uh, they weren't exactly uh, on campus in great numbers. Throughout her time, she also just supported people in her own lab, people in, you know, related labs, and in her service activities, um, you know, she she was head of many different organizations and groups, and she always spent time trying to um, make sure that women were being seen, heard, and, you know, uh, represented well in their departments, in various group, national groups that represented scientists. So it was something that was a passion project for her for out, throughout her career. I'm sure it took a lot of strategizing and a lot of hard work at MIT to accomplish what she did for women because the sentiment was cast in stone, the, the misunderstanding of the role of women in the world. She experienced it, first of all, in Chicago with her Ph.D. advisor. This is a wonderful clip about that, the last clip I'll play. My Ph.D. tutor was a maybe more traditional and conventional for his time in history. So his idea was that there was no place for women in physics. And every time he would see me, he would ask me, what are you doing here? <laughs> With the idea that maybe I should get lost somewhere and disappear from the face of the earth. Somehow he had this background and he couldn't shake it for a long time because this prejudice was with him, I would say, for maybe 10, 15, or 20 years. But he did change. And not only did he change in his later life, but he wrote me a very nice note saying that he was wrong and that he was very sorry that he had so little support for my presence 
and he appreciated all the things that I did, and he was sorry if he had discouraged me, but happy to see that I was doing well. I thought that was a very courageous thing of him to do, and I told him so, that I really appreciated that he had changed his mind, and I was happy that I had some role in changing his mind. She was a good winner. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Millie always... Uh... Even when she was delivering bad news in the sense of trying to get people to improve, she did it with a smile. And I think that's what really helped get her message across in a way that was um, acceptable and that didn't cause more resentment, I think. You know, she really definitely helped uh, things over at MIT, but really around the country. So we have a lot of, to thank for her. So, yeah. Well, we have her to thank for a lot, and we have you to thank for a lot for bringing Millie to life in the pages of your book. I was reminded of Marie Curie, and she needs to be as popular and famous as Marie Curie was. Well, I certainly agree. I certainly think so. I think she had as much of an impact on the actual science that Marie Curie did. So um, I'm certainly hopeful that her story will be out there a little bit more uh, with this book. Well, thank you for talking with me about Millie today, and thank you for writing Carbon Queen. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. Mike Brown was awarded the Kavli Prize in 2012 for his exploration of the outer reaches of the solar system. He's professor of astronomy at Caltech, where his website is mikebrown.caltech.edu. His 2010 memoir of his role in demoting Pluto from a planet to a dwarf is the delightfully titled How I Killed Pluto and Why It Had It Coming. Millie Dresselhaus, known as the Queen of Carbon, also was awarded the Kavli Prize in 2012. It was one of many awards she received during her 57-year-long career at MIT. Those awards included the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2014, three years before her death. I talked with Maya Weinstock, the author of Carbon Queen, the remarkable life of nanoscience pioneer Mildred Dresselhaus. Maya is deputy editorial director at MIT News, and she's well known in the Lego community for her many figures of women in science and technology. Her website is maiaw.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, we continue with our celebration of past winners of the Kavli Prize. Artem Patapudian was a laureate in 2020 for his work on how the brain perceives touch. Little bumps, even one 500th diameter of a human hair, you can sense that by running your finger over it which is really mind-boggling. I don't even mentally can imagine that. But at the same time, of course, there is what we call affective touch. And 
especially during COVID, we've all appreciated the pleasure of hugging uh, a friend or a family member that we've missed because of separation. So this whole idea that, you know, you can use it to realize what's going on in your world, but also it's very strongly attached to our, you know, emotional being makes it complicated and very interesting, and a lot of it we still don't understand. I also catch up with Emmanuelle Charpentier, who shared her Kavli Award and later the Nobel Prize, with Jennifer Doudna for their invention of the gene-editing tool CRISPR. I started to work on the mechanism, and then I reached out to Jennifer Doudna, and we, we finalized <laughs> the story and ultimately uh, developed uh, this technology that was relatively easy to develop because the natural mechanism was giving us the, the clue of how, uh, how to use the system for laboratory and engineering purposes. So that has a lot of implications in, in biology and medicine. Why the sensation of touch is so important and the tool that has revolutionized biomedical research, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.